I've been thinking about what should have been different now, given that we went through that experience. That's Takumba Ishmael, the co-founder and managing partner of Aletheia Capital, who we heard from last episode. Fortunately, because the situation was contained quite early and rapidly and dealt with quite well during the Ebola time, there's some things that should have happened since that time, like our health ecosystem and infrastructure, which should have been better prepared for now. Having lived through the Ebola crisis in West Africa a few years ago, has Takumba left thinking about what role she as an investor can play in helping to build critical infrastructure that African countries are still lacking? I feel that even as an investor, perhaps we should have even pushed more on developments in the health sector that would have prepared us better for now. While COVID-19 has had a horrible crippling effect on individuals and economies alike, we must also ask ourselves how we can take advantage of the opportunity now to build the infrastructure required to mitigate the impact of events of this kind in the long term. And so in this episode of The Flip, the second of our two-part series on building in crises, we talk to entrepreneurs who are helping to mitigate the impact of COVID-19 today, while potentially also building solutions that will have a lasting impact for the future of the continent. You're listening to The Flip, the podcast exploring more contextually relevant stories from entrepreneurs around Africa. Welcome back to The Flip. I'm your host, Justin Norman. They say never waste a good crisis. And while entrepreneurs, foundations, multinationals, and governments alike are focused on mitigating the impact of COVID-19 in the short term, there exists an opportunity to take advantage of, to build critical infrastructure and solve problems today that will have lasting impact for the long term. It's a sentiment shared by Oria Kolo in Kenya. I think it's a, such a rare opportunity for us to question so many things and such a rare opportunity for us to get things in place that would never have happened or to move, including with government, at a speed that you know previously people had said could, things couldn't happen. Ori's sentiment on the opportunity in light of COVID-19 is born in part out of her past crisis experiences as one of the founders of Ushahidi, built in response to post-election violence in Kenya in 2008. And as you look at the work being done around COVID-19 today, I think it's instructive to look back at the origins of Ushahidi, which leveraged nascent technology of the time to solve one specific problem and whose application and utility elsewhere in the world has allowed the organization to endure 13 years after its founding. At the time, connectivity was not as great. Most people are not online. And the state was trying to kind of limit how much information was coming out about what was happening as far as the post-election violence. And so I started capturing a lot of this on my blog, kind of live blogging. You can still check out her posts on her blog, KenyanPundit.com. And then realize that there was so many people were leaving comments about what was happening. And so the immediate problem was how do you keep information flowing in a time when the traditional channels of keeping information flowing were either uh, being censored or self-censoring. Much like our current crisis today, Ori started by attempting to solve an immediate problem facing Kenya at that time. And through her initial live blocking efforts, Ushahidi was born. I think my immediate, immediate concern, and, and this is why Ushahidi was called Ushahidi, which means testimony, was that the government would erase 
everything that had happened or pretend like nothing really happened. It was just a few clashes, which they've done before. So I think this, I, all these things were kind of burning, you know, floating around in my head. And I, I, I think if you go back to my blog, you can even see the link where I was like, all right, there has to be a more efficient way to do this. And this is where technology allowed Ori and her new co-founders to report incidents at scale. Here's an idea. What if we mapped all the reports that are coming in from citizens so we could at least have a view of the scale of what was happening and preserve this information for future. And fairly quickly, Eric Hirschman got in touch with me and he reached out to David Cobia. Juliana came on board a bit later on, but that was the genesis of it. You asked whether there was a plan, not really. I think it was more, let's just build something. It took about nine days. So as the early days of Ushahidi involved quick action and support from volunteers around the world, soon thereafter, it became clear that there was a need for this kind of technology and incident reporting elsewhere on the continent as well. There was actually a very specific trigger, which was the xenophobic violence that broke out in South Africa in 2008. I was known to folks in the civil society space and tech space in, in South Africa, and they reached out to me and said, hey, you know, that thing that you did in Kenya, I think we need it here. Which then raised the question of how to leverage this technology at scale. And then just in the process of being like, oh my God, do we need to build a whole brand new site for them? How does this work? This doesn't make sense. And why don't we just open source it? And I think those fairly quickly realizing, oh, actually, this could be used in so many other um, contexts. And initially, it was organic, right? So people just reached out and said, well, what about this? Do you think we can use it for that? Just being agnostic and saying, well, you know, let people use it help in a way that makes more sense. I think a critical decision was deciding to go open source fairly early on, which then allowed for scale. In many ways, the story of Ushahidi is startup best practice. Focus on solving one local specific problem and scale as the tech allows and demand requires. And as we fast forward to today, there's another collaboration that's solving a specific local problem in Kenya. The whole idea around uh, safe hands is how do we get necessary uh, inputs into the hands of the people who need it most? How do we get hand sanitizer? to the people out there in this neighborhood? How do we get soap? How do we get water? You know, how do we get surface disinfectants? How do we get uh, masks? This is an initiative that is designed in a very bespoke way to solve a very immediate problem. That's Peter and Jonjo, the co-founder and CEO of Twiga Foods, which is one of the startups that has come together with other startups, multinationals, foundations, and community organizations in an amazing collaborative initiative called Safe Hands Kenya whose goal, as Peter mentioned, is to get essential services in the hands of the most at-risk Kenyans during the COVID-19 period. Twiga Foods' contribution is repurposing and leveraging their existing technology and logistics infrastructure. And uh, as the orders come in, uh, we have uh, an AI-enabled uh, platform where we're able to look at who's ordering, how far they are, what are their geographical coordinates, uh, what's the state of a road near where they are, how do we then best organize to get product out to them? What happens is that with that information on routing, we then uh, load our vehicles. And as they're going about doing their normal deliveries, then we can then drop the soap to the, to the retailers. And I think that's, that's, that's what I really like about the Safe Hands initiative, is that 
We're leveraging our assets and getting this product to the most vulnerable at no cost. And what's enabling SafeHands to solve these immediate problems is the level of collaboration across a diverse set of stakeholders. I am particularly very excited about the SafeHands project that we're running. A number of um, essential service providers in the country came together to form this coalition of businesses, um, not just uh, businesses that are you know, running essential services, but also community engagement organizations. That's Angela Nzioki, the CEO of SokoWatch Kenya. SokoWatch, similarly, leverages technology and data to distribute FMCGs to informal retailers in Kenya, and through the Safe Hands project, are also distributing essential products via their existing distribution network. A lot of the collaborators within the project are not just partners, there's some that are also competitors, which for me has become one of those situations where you all stand and look back and think, what is more important, being able to serve people in the communities or us fighting each other? Tuga Foods is one of those competitors, but it's clear for both Angela and Peter that having their respective companies participate in the Safe Hands initiative is not only meaningful in terms of solving the problem at hand, it's also opening up additional collaboration and partnership opportunities that have positive implications for the long-term objectives of mission-driven companies like Sokowatch and Twiga. To give you an example, you know, we started having a conversation with Jumia around uh, Safe Hands. And we started looking at, you know, what capabilities do you have? You know, what if we're able to get food to uh, people's homes at a low cost? Uh, would that help around this COVID period? And as a result of the conversations that we started in Safe Hands, we've now launched a joint initiative to actually do direct-to-homes distribution of food, fresh food, to be, to be specific, something that uh, was not very mainstream uh, a few weeks ago. So out of this type of loose collaboration, I think a lot of innovation will be born out of the members collaborating and coming together. And Sokowatch seems to be having a similar experience. So if I was to speak from a partnership perspective, so this has opened up a way for all of us to have better relationships. And then when I look at other different partners, including competitors, it's given us all an opportunity to think there's a very big market in terms of underserved people. And how can we each play our different roles to make sure that no one is left behind? And I hope that beyond COVID-19, we can still be able to utilize um, some of the partnerships we've been able to to create to even keep serving the same uh, communities in the same uh, shops and being able to give them access to not just essential goods and services, but anything else that can be able to help them sustain themselves, either from a business perspective or from a life perspective. For Angela and Sokowatch, this underscores their mission and the opportunity to become a full stack partner for their retailers. I think what has jumped out to us as the, the likely thing that we really, really need to think about is how do we ensure sustainability for our customers? What are some of our other value-added services that we can build and deploy to our existing shops to keep them in existence a lot longer? So as opposed to just having a transactional relationship with our shops, how else do we become, do we truly become the number one partner for retail shops? So I, I would say that's one of the biggest opportunities that this pandemic has, has, has made us think about. It's something we're already thinking about, but I would say the COVID-19 has accelerated uh, having to put things and in, in measures in place. As SokoWatch endeavors to get deeper into the lives of their customers through things like digital financial services, their strategy has been reinforced. And I would say that the other thing COVID has, has done for us is it's just proven that we have the right model. 
we have the right and the winning model. I mean, these were things that we were already thinking about, but the situation has just made it more apparent that most businesses cannot be able to survive long term without getting access to more than just the fast moving consumer goods. And for Peter and Twiga, it's also a reminder of the purpose their company is serving. This is a period where companies need to go back to their purpose. Why do you exist? And if I look at the reason why Twiggy exists, our reason is to leverage technology to provide higher quality, lower cost food to consumers in urban cities. And being true to that mission or being true to that purpose means that at the end of this period, you know, once we look at post-COVID, it would be great if people spend significantly lower amount of money on food that they're doing than they're doing today. If there's one positive to the pandemic, perhaps it's that it's compelling and facilitating partnerships to serve the greater good and to bring people together to solve problems that have already existed, but that now are being brought even further to the fore. But to bring back Ori Okolo, maybe it's also an opportunity to take things even one step further. The stick safe hands, for instance, what if it was about just more than, you know, making sure everyone has sanitizer and, you know, the water tanks are going around and saying, actually, can we just take this opportunity now that we have everybody's attention to actually fix Nairobi's water problem because it's solvable and there's some resources. We know what needs to be done. So why don't we just do that in parallel and make sure that people have water, period, not just during COVID. I think that it would be so sad if we're not grabbing onto those, in fact, be like a waste of a crisis, if we're not grabbing those opportunities to actually build infrastructure that should have been there to begin with and that is now possible either because the attention is there, the resources are there, the mind share is there. And as startups like Sokowatch and Twiga Foods take a first principles approach to solving problems and building products and services for their customers, we have the opportunity to leverage technology and innovation to solve glaring problems on the continent. There's lessons in what and how people in Kenya are building, an opportunity in the increased will, resources, and attention of all the stakeholders who wish to see a better African future. And that's not to say that we haven't been building, but the challenge remains and the opportunity is here. And that's what my BMIC Shio and I sat down to talk about. The problems that need to be solved today and that a, a problem that Ushahidi solved 10 years ago and a problem that Safe Hands Kenya is solving today, like those problems existed, right? It's not anything new because of COVID-19, but are they more readily solvable right now because there's an increased interest and attention and resources? How can we leverage the opportunity to actually solve a problem that already existed, but that now is just more readily solvable. But doesn't that negate the argument that the problems could have been solved before COVID? No, that's the point is there's more leverage points now. They could have been solved, but but they were that much more difficult to solve at that point because there was less opportunities and attention and resources to leverage. Okay. And? Don't waste the opportunity. Okay. Sure. But I mean, I, I guess... I feel that way about everything, right? And maybe that's the maybe that's the point, right? In some respects, how people are going about solving problems for COVID-19 right now is like no different than 
you know, the episode that we did in season one talking about blended finance and accessing grants and like tapping into different sorts of resources. Like it's really the same as it, as it always was. Maybe that's the entire point is that like the problems exist, they've existed. It's almost like the earlier newsletter where it was like, you know, Mark Andreessen wrote about, you know, it's time to build. And I was like, but haven't we been building? Like what's different now? Mm. You know? Yeah. It sounds kind of like that, to be honest. Notwithstanding the fact that it's always the same, I do think there is something interesting. And I actually found myself quite uh, inspired by the, and maybe Ushahidi as well, you know, and, and Safe Hands, just in the way that people just kind of got together and solved problems. And competitors, especially. And competitors especially. I, I found that awesome. I love that. Like I generally hold the view that, especially in some markets, there's some markets where competition is like necessary, good for everybody and um, the market's big enough. But I think especially with people solving quite big or important rather problems for SMEs and things like that, there's a disturbing lack of collaboration in my personal opinion for people who i i believe generally everyone's heart is, is in the right place and i think that there's a cool thing that's obviously in terms of a prompt or in terms of the conditions or whatever you call them the leverage points or whatever that you know maybe might illuminate um in inverted commas that new normal where we we can kind of see because the, the conditions have made that collaboration necessary and kind of differences put to the side and all that stuff. And um, the benefits might usher in a, a more contextual and sophisticated way of collaborating or what do you call it? Co-opetition. What's the word when you like compete, but collaborate at the same time? Mm. I don't know if that's a word. I might have made it up. There's definitely a word for it, but I might have made that word up. Yeah, and to that point, maybe maybe I underestimated the the importance of Ushahidi being open source and that being a key to their success and Safe Hands Kenya adapting this very open community-driven initiative as well and like a, a byproduct of the problem being bigger than any one individual entity is that it um, compels an openness and an open ecosystem and and things that are very dear to like like technology at its core and and open source movements and things like that and and you know maybe that's the best way to go about solving problems COVID or not COVID related is the fact that these entities who are in a position to solve problems are are more more compelled now than ever before to actually collaborate you know, you can still be competitive and collaborate at the same time. Yeah, competition. Is that actually? It is. I Googled it. But um, yeah, so that, that was something that I was buoyed by. I found that really kind of inspiring and made me want to you know, jump into the Kenyan ecosystem and get involved. I think I think as entrepreneurs as well, you, you, get, into, you get into it to solve problems. I, I don't know necessarily how much you get into it to beat your competition. Do you know what I mean? Like that just happens to be often a byproduct of solving the problem in the way you see fit. I think elevation of the problem solution set as most important was, was something that I, I, was, I was definitely quite inspired by in this episode. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of The Flip. Did you know that we've also launched a weekly newsletter? Subscribe at theflip.africa forward slash newsletter for thoughtful analysis on the work being done by the entrepreneurs you hear here on our show. Those that are building a future inspired by Africa. That's theflip.africa forward slash newsletter. And as always, we'd love for you to join the conversation on social media as well. You can find us at The Flip Africa. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you next time.